0: 17, remember last week we heard the voice of God who revealed his power over creation and his power even over Leviathan, that great dragon of old who on earth is not his equal. And Job responded by saying, now my eyes have seen you and I'm comforted in dust and ashes. And the book almost could have ended there. But now God goes on to show us the restoration of his servant in verses 7 through 17. It says, And so it was, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right my servant Job has. Now therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, go to my servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz, the Tamanite, and Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, went and did as the Lord commanded them. For the Lord had accepted Job. And the Lord restored Job's losses or restored his fortunes when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then all his brothers, all his sisters, and all those who had been his acquaintances before came to him and ate food with him in his house. And they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. Each one gave him a piece of silver and each a ring of gold." Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. for he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first Jemima, the name of the second Kezia, and the name of the third Karenhapuk, In all the land, there were no women so beautiful as the daughters of Job, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years, saw his children and grandchildren for four generations. So Job died, old and full of days. in Luke chapter 24, Jesus said that all of the prophets speak of how the Messiah must suffer, then enter into his glory. The very first sermon of this series, uh, we spoke of the the messianic trajectory, uh, the messianic pattern that we see throughout the scriptures in in men like Joseph and Moses and and David and, and the Psalms. Um, Even in Israel as a nation, we see over and over this pattern of of suffering unto glory. And Jesus says that the whole Old Testament prepares the way for this same pattern that will be fulfilled in him. In fact, uh, Luke 24, it it says that he gives a seven-mile sermon on the way from Jerusalem to Emmaus explaining how all the scriptures do this. They prophetically predict and depict the suffering unto glory of the Messiah. And of all of the scriptures that uh, predict and depict this, I think the book of Job stands above the rest as it uniquely contributes this pattern of suffering unto glory, where it gives us 42 chapters. 42 chapters of, of sitting with God's servant to prepare us for the one to come. And in all of the chapters of this book is it paints us this portrait of the Messiah to come. I would submit to you this chapter that we've just read stands above the rest in the clear gospel picture that it paints. There's a reason why William Blake in his paintings on the book of Job presents Job here in in verses 7 to 9 with hands outstretched like Christ on the cross. Uh, There's a reason why the church fathers would, would often use Job for their readings during Passion Week. Because it is the story of a righteous man who by God's set purpose is handed over to Satan, inflicted suffering, mocked and mistreated, falsely accused, yet prays for his enemies, and after a costly and substitutionary blood sacrifice, becomes a priestly mediator between them and God. It is then publicly vindicated by God and given glory and honor in the sight of all. Uh, Douglas O'Donnell says the final chapter of Job reinforces this gospel-centered reading of the whole drama. Job 42, verses seven and eight, read like a gospel tract. Man has sinned against God. God is angry at sin, but in his mercy deals with these sinners not according to their folly, but accepts the mediator who prays for them and the blood sacrifice which allows their sins To be forgiven. Here at congregation, we see the gospel according to Job. And we see it really in in two movements. Uh, First, we see the vindication of God's servant who intercedes for sinners in righteousness. And then we see the restoration of God's servant who is raised up after his priestly intercession for sinners. So I want to consider those two themes this morning. As our study of the book comes to a close, that our hearts, like those disciples in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus, might also burn within us as we see the suffering and yet also the glory of Christ depicted. So look with me first at Job's vindication. I see this really in two parts. I'm first in God's declaration of him as righteous, and then in God's appointment of him as priest, to intercede for his friends. Now, first, God's declaration of him is righteous. It shouldn't be lost on us that we see this uh, two times. God says to the friends in verse seven, my wrath is aroused against you for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. And then again in verse eight, in case we didn't get the point, My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept him and not deal with you according to folly for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. By the way, it's interesting that God calls him four times in this passage, my servant. That's a title of honor in the Old Testament uh, given to men like Abraham and Moses and David into those servant songs in Isaiah given to the Messiah. God is here vindicating him by what he calls him. God is here vindicating him by what he says about him. God is also here vindicating him in his anger toward the friends, which the ESV or other, other translations say burned against them. We see God's declaration Of Job is righteous in his burning anger toward Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar for how they have denied back in chapter 4 that the innocent ever perish by so saying condemning Job and how they have said that the righteous are never cut off. Job 4.7, how they've said in, in chapter 8 that God never causes a blameless man to suffer. How they've denied in Job 5.1 that there is a mediator in heaven. How they have presented throughout their speeches all throughout the book a graceless God who will not hear the prayers of Job. How in chapter 18 and chapter 20, they've preached Job into hell said that there is no way for a man like Job to be righteous before God. They have hurled accusations at him. They have mocked him. They have all throughout denied the legitimacy of his lament. They have spoken not once in the entire book of the grace of God or of his compassion, but they have confronted Job time and again with the wrath and judgment of God. In all these ways, they have not spoken of God what is right. But in supposing to defend God, they have actually opposed him and opposed his servant, denying the possibility of undeserved suffering and therefore implicitly denying the possibility of undeserved grace. We've said this before, but God gives us 15 chapters of this. 15 chapters of this and the speeches of these men to inoculate us against this kind of thinking and this kind of counsel. If you feel it's been a bit repetitive, if if you feel it's gone on for a bit too long, that's the point. God wants us to become so frustrated with the friends that we resolve to never speak to his suffering saints as they have. That we resolve to not be so insensitive. To not think that specific sin is always the cause of specific suffering. And to not, like they have, deny the possibility of a redeemer and of undeserved grace. That's what they have consistently denied ever since chapter 4 all the way to chapter 25, and then Elihu puts the icing on the cake. And Now God shows them just how wrong they were. Now first, by rebuking them, but then as we'll see in a moment... He shows them also how wrong they were by providing a mediator to intercede for them and a sacrifice to atone for their sin so that they might not receive or so that they might receive the grace which they did not deserve. The very thing that they have been denying is possible. God shows them in the grace that he displays here just how wrong they were and how good it is that they were and then in contrast to his rebuke of the friends, his ignoring of Elihu, God says two times, Job has spoken of me what is right. Though there were things he did not understand, as God made clear in, in the passages that we looked at last week, Job's fundamental orientation toward God was right And how he believed that God was a God of grace who would provide a redeemer and how he believed that lament was an acceptable form of of prayer to God and brought it to him as an act of faith, and how he so valued his relationship to God that, that the thing he longed for most, as you look back and read through those laments, the thing that he longed for most was a renewed sense of God's loving nearness. He loved God. In all these ways, Job spoke of God what is right, Unlike the friends, he spoke to God rather than just about God. Unlike the friends, he valued God not just for his gifts, but for who he is in himself. And he denied their prosperity gospel. And unlike the friends, Job did not believe in the graceless God that they have been depicting. In all these ways, he spoke of God, what is right, and he is here vindicated by God for it. God is here declaring him righteous. This is the justification of Job before his accusers. It's a little bit like God saying from heaven, this is my beloved son. Remember, is what this all points to as, as the vindication of God's servant points to the vindication of God's son. And we see this this Job Christ typology even more clearly in what's next. Next part of God's vindication of Job is is God's appointment of him as priestly mediator for his friends. Those, Those words in verse eight, it says, now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams for yourself, and go to my servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job will pray for you. And I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly. I want you to notice a couple of things about this verse. Um, first, if you're following along in the New King James, um, notice how those words at the end of verse 8, according to your just before folly, according to your, or in italics. That's because they're not in the original Hebrew, but, but it literally says, lest I do with you a folly. Uh, lest I do with you something something bad, something terrible. The Septuagint picks up on this when it, when it translates this, or else I would destroy you. God is saying, my wrath so burns against you for all of the ways that you have taken my name in vain, for all of the ways that you have claimed to speak for me when what you are actually doing is denying the gospel and making yourself an enemy of the cross, an enemy of the servant, an enemy of me. And so my wrath burns against you and the only thing that will prevent me from destroying you is if this righteous man who has just been publicly vindicated will intercede for you. And so I want him to supervise your offering of 14 animals to be sacrificed, the very high number highlighting the severity of your sin. And as you bring those animals, And as your sins are are placed on those animals to represent the transfer of your guilt, and those animals are then consumed in burning smoke and burning fire, and my servant prays for you, it is then that my wrath will be appeased. Because I accept him, I will not destroy you. Variations that sound a little bit like the gospel. God does not deal with these sinners according to the wrath that they rightly deserve because of a righteous mediator who prays for them. Christopher Ashe says the one who throughout the book in chapter 9, chapter 16, and chapter 19 longed for a mediator now becomes the mediator and foreshadows the only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus. Job foreshadows him as he is here lying in dust and ashes, his sores still oozing, his tears still flowing, his restoration having not yet happened. But from this place of suffering and agony, he lifts up his prayer with outstretched hands and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Does this stricken, smitten, and afflicted priest of God sound a little bit like Christ? Vindicated not only by God justifying him and declaring that he has spoken of him what is right, but also by God causing him to become the one whose acceptance in God's sight makes others acceptable. Acceptable. Whose priestly intercession from dust and ashes appeases the wrath of God so he might not destroy them. This is the most beautiful picture in the book. God not only vindicates him by declaring him righteous and and making him a priest, just as he was back at the beginning of the book when he offered sacrifices for his children. But God also vindicates him by accepting the prayer of this priest and thereby accepting them, his enemies, for whom Job prays. Again, as a further testimony of his righteousness. Do you see that the humility of God's servant praying for his tormentors And you see in it a shadow of the one to come whose outstretched arms as priest would make intercession for God's enemies and would make God's enemies his friends. May God work something of this kind of humility and cheek-turning, cross-bearing love for enemies in us That we like Job here in Job 42 and we like Christ on the cross would love those who hate us and would pray for those who persecute us or who falsely accuse us and say all kinds of unkind things about us. May may God work something of this in us so that we too would truly love our enemies. Let us uh, next consider the restoration of Job that we see in verses uh, 10 to 17. We see his vindication in verses 7 to 9 and then his restoration in 10 to 17 where uh, immediately after this uh, stricken, smitten, and afflicted priest of God prays for his friends, it says in verse 10, and God restored Job's fortunes. If you have the New King James, it says his Um, his losses, but ESV and other translations uh, render that. He restored his fortunes. That's the same way that um, the New King James renders it in, in Deuteronomy and the Psalms. It's the same phrase here. God restores his fortunes. And here too, we see a shadow of the Lord Jesus, the one who would suffer these things before entering into his glory. That's what we see in this last little part of the book, the the glory of God's once humiliated but now exalted servant. Where this one who has just interceded for his enemies as a suffering priest is now raised up and given twice as much as all he had before Boys and girls, you remember all the way back at the beginning of the book, how it gave us all these numbers telling us about just, just how many oxen and donkeys and camels and sheep Job had. Um, now, those numbers are double. As Job is here given the double inheritance of a firstborn son. Isaiah chapter 61 It says, instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. That's what God gives Job here. Not only is he restored in the things that God gives him, but he is also restored socially. Everyone who had rejected him, betrayed him, And mocked him, remember how it talked about how the the boys and girls, the the children even of the drunkards and the poor would make him their, their taunting song. Everyone who had mocked and despised and discounted him, now it says they come and feast with him and they console him and they comfort him and they bring their gifts to him. The one who was rejected and despised becomes the one who all men honor and bring their treasures to as he hosts them at a great feast. Again, this sounds a little bit like what we sang of earlier of the humbled one in Philippians chapter 2, who becomes the glorified one, who was given a name above all names that all men confess. We have just a little picture of that in Job 42. Where we see just how much his cup overflows. That that even though in the ancient Near East and in the Old Testament, daughters were not given an inheritance among their brothers, these three daughters of Job, Keziah, Jemima, and Karen Hapuk, who it mentions in verse 13 to 15, they are given just that. They're given an equal inheritance among their brothers. That's how much God has made Job's cup to overflow. His days, verse seventeen, to be full, so full that he sees his children and his children's children to four generations. Job's restoration is complete, as is this picture that the book is painting of the glory, suffering, and then greater glory of God's servant. Remember, that's, that's the messianic pattern. Glory, suffering, and then greater glory. And that's the picture that we see in Job 42 of the greater glory and exaltation of God's once despised and humiliated servant. Now we see him lifted up. Yeah, that's not the only thing that we see here. Remember, we've made the point throughout the book that The Christ who is foreshadowed in Job's suffering is the Christ to whom believers, you and I, are united by faith. And so his pattern of suffering is also given to us. That's why so often in places like Philippians 3 or Romans chapter 8, it speaks of sharing in the suffering of Christ. Um, Colossians 1, filling up what is lacking in his afflictions. That's why Paul says in Acts chapter 14, it is through many trials and tribulations that we must enter in to the kingdom of God. The Suffering of Job foreshadows the suffering of Christ, which we share in as those who are united to him. The same is also true of his glory. This is not only a shadow of the glory of Christ, the suffering servant whom God raises up, vindicates, and glorifies, but as we are united to him, Job's restoration also becomes a picture of ours, of yours. That even in the midst of the suffering that you experience in this life, even in the midst of this veil of tears, which is what Lord's Day 9 calls this life. This is the restoration that awaits you. I think there's, there's several hints of this in the text. Notice... Verse 10, we made the point already as we sang Psalm 126 where it says that Zion's fortunes God restored, that that's, that's Old Testament language for restoration from exile. And that same exact language is used here in verse 10 when it says that God restored Job's losses. It's the same language from Deuteronomy 30 verse 3 or from Psalm 126. He restored his fortunes. This phrase comes up over 20 times in the Old Testament, always referring to restoration from captivity in exile. And to the final restoration, of which that return from exile was but a shadow. God was here giving his people a little glimpse of what he would do for them on the other side of captivity. That's what Israel had as they read Job chapter 42 in exile. They had in it a picture of the covenant blessings that would come upon them after the curses and of the double portion that God promised in place of their shame. This is reinforced by the language of, of verse 12 where it speaks of the latter days of Job. This too is prophetic idiom for the age of fulfillment. This is the way the Old Testament prophets speak of of the return from exile, but especially the messianic kingdom. The latter days. Gerhardus Voss says this this phrase, the latter days, belongs strictly in the field of eschatology. It is, one commentator says, a depiction of eternity in Old Testament times. So God is here giving these little hints that the experience of Job here points beyond himself to the experience of all God's people in the latter days. If you're not convinced yet, that's, that's how James chapter 5 applies it. Where James says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord... And take the patience of the prophets as an example of suffering and endurance, for you have heard of the perseverance of Job and of the end that the Lord brought about, who is compassionate and merciful. Job, or James rather, is encouraging the suffering believers to whom he writes, the same suffering believers who he started his book by saying, count it all joy, brothers, when you experience trials of many kinds. He is encouraging those suffering believers to wait patiently for the coming of Jesus Christ, and he does so by pointing them back to the book of Job, the one who suffered patiently until the gracious end that the Lord brought about. In other words, James compares the ending of the book of Job to the end of human history and the coming of Jesus Christ. He compares it to the latter days of which the prophets speak. He he reads it as a picture not just of, of Job's restoration or, or of Christ's resurrection, but he reads it as a picture of ours. Which again, there might even be another little hint at in verse 13. God speaks of Job's latter days. He uh, speaks of restoring his fortunes. But notice also this little detail where all of the numbers from Job chapter 1 are doubled, except for Job's children. Why does it not tell us that he has 20 children? The same way that he has now 6,000 camels or 1,000 yoke of oxen. I think the answer is because he does. Those original 10 children were not lost, but he will see them again at the resurrection. Here in Job chapter 42 is a word of comfort to those who have lost children, even children in the womb. Glenda Mathis puts it in her book on early infant loss. God gave Job the same number of children because his original seven sons and three daughters still existed. And he would see them again at the resurrection, of which this chapter is a prophecy. A prophecy of God restoring our fortunes in the latter days when the dead will be raised, even our children whom we've lost in this life, and there will be feasting and gold and comfort for all the adversity that we've experienced in this vale of tears. Notice the inheritance of Christ's daughters will be every bit as much as his sons, verse 15, because in Christ, First Peter 3, 7, we are co-heirs. This whole chapter points to the end, where our fortunes, verse 10, will be restored. Our tears, verse 11, will be wiped away. We will feast with Christ at the wedding supper of the Lamb, verse 11, and we will walk on streets of gold. We'll be given twice all that we've suffered in this life, more than an accounting for our suffering, and the cup of our King will so overflow that his inheritance will become ours. Beloved, that's what Job 42 is teaching us. It's pointing us to Jesus, the blameless, suffering servant who is God's answer to Satan's accusations who suffers more than any man ever did, though he did not deserve it, who cried out to God in the midst of it, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet was mocked by those who falsely accused him. And yet nevertheless, he interceded for them as their priests and was then vindicated by God at his resurrection when God raised him up, glorified him in the presence of those who despised him, made him to dine with those who had maligned him and inherit the world. That's the picture the book of Job is painting. Verse 17 even underlines this in the fact that the book ends with the death of Job. Reminding us that he is not the one to come, but a fuller restoration awaits, a permanent restoration, a permanent vindication of Christ and all who were united to him by faith. That's what the book of Job is is presenting us with. It's reminding us that suffering is the pathway to glory. Glory. That like Job and like Christ, we must wait patiently until that glory comes. And we must trust that when it is revealed, it will make our present sufferings not worthy to be compared to that glory. And so Job says in James chapter 5 says, press on until that day. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for these seven months that we've been able to spend in the book of Job where you have shown us this pattern that would be fulfilled in your son of glory, suffering, and then greater glory. A pattern in which we share to some extent as we're united to him by faith. Lord, we pray that you would make our hearts to burn within us as we see what Christ has done in interceding for us as our suffering priest, even as we see in this passage, and then being raised up to glory, a glory in which we share. Father, make our hearts grateful and help us to wait patiently for the coming of your son when our fortunes will be restored, we will feast in your presence, our tears will be wiped away and all will be well. Lord, how we long for that day. Make us eagerly await it, even by the things that we have heard from this book, even by the things that we've heard this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.